Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Good to see you. Well, it's Friday morning, July 7, about 8.30 a.m. in our nation's capital. Time for another Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for joining us. With Congress out of town this week, most of the attention shifted to the Supreme Court, which provided, in fact, lots of news to talk about. One 6-3 decision against gay rights and another 6-3 decision blocking President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, on top of last week's 6-3 decision killing affirmative action, certainly fueled criticism that the courts become an active right-wing political force and also triggered new demands among Democrats for court reform. Meanwhile, conservative House members, to the dismay of some more moderate Republicans, are pushing to impeach President Biden and and imprison Hunter Biden. And on the political trail, far from derailing him, Donald Trump's mounting legal troubles seem to make him stronger and stronger to the point where he may already be invincible in the 2024 GOP primary. And the Biden economy keeps getting stronger and stronger, even though most Americans don't believe it and certainly don't give Joe Biden any credit for it. Well, here today to help us sort it all out, our panel, Philip Bump, Washington Post national columnist, author of The Aftermath and writer of How to Read This Chart newsletter. Hello, Philip. Welcome back. Good morning, sir. Happy to be here. Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor and White House Correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, also host of the Monitor Breakfast. Hi, Linda. Hi. Good to have you back. And David Jackson, now National Political Correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? Okay, so I know it's not the most important story of the week, but I was hiking with my family in the Swiss Alps earlier in the week. And Linda, I saw news that a bag of cocaine was found at the White House, and I immediately thought of you. What what was your alibi, Linda? What's going on? Oh, my gosh. Cocaine at the White House. So, of course, everybody immediately, everybody's thoughts go to Hunter Biden, but Hunter Biden was at Camp David with the president last weekend. So even even Kayleigh McEnany says it couldn't have been Hunter. Um, The White House says this was in a heavily traveled she, uh, almost said they almost said trafficked, but they said heavily traveled part of the White House, uh, open <laughs> to the public. Um, you know, I think it's highly possible, if not likely, that we'll never know how cocaine wound up in the White House in that way. Uh, but you know, we're all on the edge of our seats. Uh, David, do we know exactly? Look, you and I, all of us, know the White House really well. We were in and out of there on a daily basis for years. Um, this wasn't anywhere near the press office, right? Where do we know exactly where it was in the West Wing? Um, one of the interests to the executive offices is what is my understanding. Um, and there's some questions to whether 
those, um, those folks are subjected to metal detectors, which I find very, I find this whole story very odd because I can't believe they don't, they can't find out who might've left a bag of cocaine in the <laughs> white house. I don't understand how anybody with a bag of any powdery substance can get into the white house, uh, given the security procedures there. But, uh, I believe it was somewhere near the executive office. So the feeling is that it's someone who, who works there regularly. who is maybe maybe the culprit, but I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the same things Linda is. We may never know who really did it because the Secret Service seems stumped about it. But it wasn't in, was not in the press area. No, right? no, no, no. Right. So in the and the executive office, and last I saw, it was maybe at that entrance off the West Executive uh, Avenue, whatever it is, between the old executive office building and the White House where people come in there at that lower level. And there are cubby holes where people have to put their right. cell phones, right? So, I mean realistically how many times does the first family show up in that area of the white house i don't think it's hunter very rarely i, I the evidence suggests that it's not hunter i think kaylee McEnany's correct about that um it's just it's just i, I just don't understand why they can't find out or at least have a, a fairly small group of suspects as to who might have done right this. you wonder maybe there's cameras i mean that if it's yeah. an area where there are lots of people coming for meetings let's say let's say that's that's the need for cubby holes for people to put their cell phones um, yeah, you'd think there'd be some kind of uh, security apparatus. Well, Philip, unless you have something to add to this, I'd like to jump to you to a more important <laughs> with you to a more important area this week. And whether you agree or disagree on the Supreme Court's decisions on affirmative action and student loans and the LGBTQ protections, uh, doesn't one have to admit that it looks like, unlike the Congress? that conservatives on the Supreme Court have an agenda and they've got the votes to get something done. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, look, th- these are these are obviously incredibly nuanced things and and the nuance to some extent can act as a shield. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we saw, for example, in the ruling on the web designer in Colorado who wanted to refuse service from same sex couples was that there was a lot of uh, uh, you know, obviously the Supreme Court is predicated on legal argumentation, but I mean, that that it seemed as though just by taking the case in the first place, they were making a statement about the views that they wanted to support and uphold, and that they right. then, you know, came to that conclusion using all sorts of legal verbiage and so on and so forth, I think doesn't detract from the fact that they chose this particular case. I think that's also the case with the affirmative action. You know, this is what happens. We have a Supreme Court that is, you know, has six conservative members uh, that is, uh, you know, obviously ideologically to the right, whatever these these measures of ideology actually show. And they end up taking cases and then deciding on cases in a way that comports with their ideology. So, you know, look, at the end of the day, necessarily Supreme Court justices know the law far better than I do. I will absolutely concede that. Uh, but I think it's it's completely impossible to extract it from the current political moment. And I think it's unwise to do so. Uh, David, do you believe that uh, we saw certainly that the Dobbs decision, right? Uh, the first time we saw this, Supreme, this conservative Supreme Court with the new members flex their muscle, if you will, that that had a real impact on the 2022 uh, elections, uh, midterms. Do you think any of these decisions will have uh, any kind of an impact politically comparable to the Dobbs decision? Uh, sir, I, I don't think it'll be comparable. I think it may help the Democrats with their get out the vote message or with, excuse me, with their turnout machine. It may inspire more Democrats to come out to the polls and vote for their candidates. But I, 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 really don't think, I really don't think that it will. And for example, if you look at the numbers, like affirmative action, I mean, rightly or wrongly, 
Um, most Americans oppose that. That is not a political winner, I would argue. That is not a political winner for the Democrats. So I don't think we'll hear much about that decision. Um, in the LGBTQ community, they have many uh, political coalitions that I think will be more engaged with the elections after this. But I think I think the actual impact in terms of numbers will be marginal. And there have been, Linda, um, more uh, uh, already before these decisions, right? But but since more and more uh, cries for uh, time to make some changes uh, at the court, maybe adding new members, maybe add, adding term limits, not something Linda, I'm sure you've heard President Biden at the White House say he's not necessarily on board. Here he is talking to Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. I think if we start the process of trying to expand the court, we're going to politicize it maybe forever in a way that is not healthy. So what do you hear from the White House, Linda? Any interest at all in trying to make some changes? No, I mean, I Joe Biden has continues to express skepticism. It was interesting uh, Nancy Pelosi saying she believes there should be term limits for justices, um, which I think is less difficult to argue than adding justices to the court. But I think this is just a non-starter in terms of getting it through. And I think this is not a hill that Democrats want to die on. There's so many other, I think, more pressing issues. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the this, what's really happening, I think, is that Supreme Court in some ways is becoming another legislature where you have you can kind of predict what the justices will do based on who who appointed them. Uh, but I think, you know, the minute you start adding justices in particular, then it just becomes an arms race. And, you know, who was it? Somebody was floating the idea of having 100 justices on the Supreme Court. That would obviously <laughs> be unwieldy and ridiculous. Yeah, as Philip pointed out earlier, too, you can almost predict what they want to do by the ca- by the cases they choose to take, right? Uh, and and showing their hand, if you will, with conservative agenda. Uh, Philip, what about um, maybe not uh, increasing the numbers of members of the court, but or maybe not even putting in term limits? What about an ethics code for the court? Well, this is something obviously that's been raised, particularly in the wake of the revelations about Clarence Thomas, which I'll, I'll note, by the way, were raised also a decade ago, and literally with Harlan Crow, the same situation that people sort of memory hold, and there's a brief flurry <laughs> of concern about ethics at that point in time. You know, John Roberts, uh, is, by all appearances, has long been very conscious about how history will regard him and how history will regard his court. And, you know, that has generally manifested in his insistences that the court that he oversees is not partisan, that they are, you know, simply you know, making their decisions based on their own belief in the law and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I, I find it really hard to believe that he is not struggling with a way in which to demonstrate to the country and to the history of books that the court is not marred. Uh, by the fact that the justices are taking these free trips and not reporting them. Um, I think that there's obviously pressure from the left in Congress uh, to implement some sort of code. I think there's almost no pressure from the right in Congress, uh, just because that's how these things work. Um, I I don't know what's going to happen, but it seems pretty fair to me to assume that John Roberts may come out with something that is intended to offset this, or maybe he'll just, you know, hope it dies down as he did 10 years ago and and hope it doesn't come back up. Do you think, uh, Philip, John Roberts still is in control at the court? 
Yeah, I mean, necessarily, right? I mean, he, he, he has a position that the others aren't afforded. Uh, you know, do I think he is able to get Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito to do what he wants to do? No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, you know, but but I think that, you know, if John Roberts were to come out and make a public statement saying, OK, here's what here's the code of ethics that I'm endorsing, you know, having Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito come out against that, I think, is sets up a very weird situation, but I don't think does anyone any good. Right. Uh, so, Linda, yesterday, President Biden, of all places, showed up in West Columbia, South Carolina, uh, to dedicate a new factory down there. Part of uh, what the White House is saying, uh, and even the Wall Street Journal is praising, as a new era of investment mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, some predicted $3.5 trillion in new investments because of the infrastructure bill and the chips bill and others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you'd have to say, Linda, South Carolina, there are lots of places he could have gone in the United States to open a new factory, right? South Carolina deliberately chosen and why? Yeah, well, it's his uh, his chosen state to have the first primary. Uh so this is Joe Biden uh, trying to uh, impress the, his constituency there. Of course, he's getting into trouble with this new schedule because he's trying to skip over Iowa and New Hampshire, who are proceeding with their uh, nomination processes. So uh, I think he's hoping that, you know, those aren't a big embarrassment for him, say, with oh somebody named Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, winning a bunch of votes. But yeah, South Carolina, economic investment, this is, uh, you know, the continuation of the whole Bidenomics push, taking what was once a slur and turning it into a positive. Um, This is, to me, a fascinating project. I I think the argument is that the the term Bidenomics is out there, love it or not. And so we're going to take try to turn those negatives around and, and, and push the positives of what he's doing, investing in jobs, uh, lots of strong economic numbers, except besides inflation, which is the big one that really hurts people and which people feel every day. Uh, so in fact, I hosted a breakfast last week with, um, with Lyle Brainerd, uh, Biden's top economic advisor. And, uh, I said, doesn't inflation trump everything? And she said, no, having a job trumps everything. So we, this is an argument we will see play out uh, really up until Election Day. Uh, David, it clearly, as Linda points out, that it, it, that the Biden team is making the economy the number one issue, Bidenomics the number one issue. Uh, is that a smart strategy? And are they kind of counting on, I guess, what we all believe, that the, that the economy is always, in a presidential election, the number one issue? Oh, yeah, no doubt. And uh, I think it's like it is smart of him to promote economics because there are good numbers in there. There there are also some not good numbers in there because the economy has changed so much since the pandemic. And I think a lot of people question whether the Biden administration really has a good handle on how to deal with that, because there's still a lot of boarded up storefronts in every city I go to. So it's uh, things are demonstrably different in terms of the macro economy since uh, since covid. But I think one of the things that they're trying to do, at least they, what they tell me, is they're trying to get some of these uh, non-college educated males who love Donald Trump. They somehow feel like they can peel away some of that vote by stressing the fact that the, a lot of the jobs he's talking about are targeted for people who don't have degrees and who in a, a former time would have been industrial workers or in, in factories. They're not trying to absorb some of those people into the new economy. 
And I think they'll be able to tell a story about that, but I, I seriously doubt they'll be able to, to get many of those votes because so many non-college educated uh, voters that I talk to just have a resentment of the Biden administration, the Democratic Party, and it's going to be very hard to appeal to them. On that economic front, uh, the Department of Labor announcing the numbers just came out a few minutes ago. Uh, for June, 209,000 new jobs created, which is down from what it has been in the last few months. But still, um, I remember at one time when uh, 100,000 would have been considered a, a miracle. Uh, and the unemployment rate remaining at a historic low of 3.6%. Overall, um, with uh, the, all this new investment, 32,000 infrastructure, new infrastructure projects already approved by the Biden administration. Philip, why isn't Joe Biden getting any credit? Well, I mean, look, I, I am someone who for a long time has argued that presidents don't deserve a lot of credit for the jobs numbers. Uh, the president <laughs> obviously has some ability to turn the levers of the economy, but I think it's overstated. And I think politicians overstate it intentionally. Uh, you know, when we saw a lot of conversation, you know, oh, Donald Trump doesn't get credit for all these jobs numbers. Or, you know, Trump going out there saying, oh, record number of people working. It's like, well, yeah, the population grew. Like, we, we always see these arguments <laughs> from presidents. And, I, you know, I think yeah. that. Uh, while it is certainly the case that the president can can prevent major crises from occurring, um, I don't know that, that, that Biden has a whole lot of sway over these particular month-to-month -month, uh, fluctuations. But look, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the picture is nonetheless good. It's sort of like what we saw with Barack Obama, right, although to a lesser extent. Barack Obama, particularly toward the end of his presidency, you know, he had this good run of jobs numbers and people just kind of shrugged about it. And I think it goes back to the point that Dave was just making. So many Americans view politics through the lens of, yes, absolutely how their current personal position is, but broadly through these cultural and ideological fights that they don't really care that much. They're working, they, have, they don't care that other people are working, the jobs numbers went up. They're more concerned about the ideological fights in which they're meshed. Uh, and I think that tends to be a bigger driver of politics. Um, and is this, uh, <laughs> so I guess, again, looking back at, you can't deny, I think, um, the number of the number of new projects that have been created, right, the number of new investments, the number of new factories opening, particularly in red states uh, as well. Um, here is Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre this week at the White House, David, uh, making the point. Um, sounds like she's reading from talking points, but she's making the administration's argument. Construction of manufacturing facility has increased by nearly 100% in two years, adjusted for inflation. As the Wall Street Journal put it, this is America's factory building boom, due in no small part to the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Binomics is unleashing huge private sector investments in manufacturing with businesses investing more than $490 billion in manufacturing and clean energy since the president took office, including more than $11 billion in South Carolina. So, David, it sounds like they've got a good uh, record to sell. Are they doing a good job selling it? I think they're doing as good a job as they can. And um, as, as Philip pointed out, a lot of people they're just a, a big chunk of people who are not going to give Biden credit for anything. for anything, <laughs> and uh, and I think it, it's uh, I mean they, they, there are some good numbers. I mean the economy is is coming is in some ways coming back from COVID, and there there is a story for them to tell. But I think that the biggest problem they've got is frankly the way I see it is Biden's age. I think the people who don't like him or and the people who are on the fence about him, the, the one concern that always raises is, is he, is he up to the job? I mean, is he too old to be president? 
I mean, every day it seems like we see some figure who raises that question, and I think it's going to continue right on through the election. So I think they, I think they're doing a good job of selling the economy, but I just don't think a lot of people are going to buy it because of concerns about his age. Also, I think they're kidding themselves when they when they downplay the inflation factor. That's just a huge factor, and I think it's going to continue to dog them until they figure out a way to deal with it. Linda, lately on the age question, uh, Biden seems to be. Um making more of a joke of it, right? You know, uh, at least taking it with a sense of humor, like he did at the White House Correspondents' exactly. Dinner. And that's that's obviously a, a strategy they feel maybe the best way to deal and put that issue, acknowledge the issue, but kind of put it aside, right? Right, exactly. No, it's the it's the classic, you know, when you have a problem, put hang a lantern on it. I mean, you can't, Biden is in public most days and we, we've seen him slow down, uh, over, over time, even since he became president. And uh, it's it's just so air and in your face. He, he really kind of has to do something about that. And, and the best he can do is, is talk about it, make light of it. But also, uh, I have to say, there are times when he's really on and, and doing well, and other times he's not. And of course, Fox News is going to do these clip jobs and, and just package all the worst stuff. But I mean, there at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, he was great. He didn't go on stage until 9.45 at night. And he was funny. He was forceful. He was uh, energized. So it's really a mixed bag. And he, he yeah, there's, there's nothing he can do but make jokes and, and, you know, try to assure people that he's mentally sharp. All right. And meanwhile, the Republican presidential primary in 2024, every day, it seems, there's something new to uh, laugh about or fret about. Let's take a look at that with our panelists after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and we'll come back with uh, David Jackson from USA Today, Linda Feldman from the Christian Science Monitor, and Philip Bump from the Washington Post. And today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They're some of the union workers that we see most often in our daily lives because they're the ones who serve us at our great big retail stores uh, like Neiman Marcus and Macy's and all the others, at our big grocery chains, uh, Safeway and Target, uh, not Target so much, Walmart and all the others. Um, and uh, they also are those who keep our chemical plants going and our meat production plants going as well around the country. We salute the good members of the UFCW, thank them for their service to this country and thank and for all of us on a daily basis and thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable here on this Friday, July 7, the Bill Press Pod. Joining us today, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, national columnist, Linda Feldman, Christian Science Monitor, Bureau Chief and White House Correspondent, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. David, uh, according to Real Clear Politics, the latest uh, um, you know, combination of polls shows in the Republican primary for 2024 president, Donald Trump with 52.4%, Ron DeSantis with 21.5%. Is it all over? Well, I don't think it's all over, but he is in a very strong position. I mean, Ralph Reed said something interesting last month in that he's gone back and his statement is that uh, Trump is the strongest uh, front runner at this stage of the game that he's ever seen in his life in politics. But he he said he compared his numbers to, uh, of all people, Robert Dole in the 1996 cycle. You know, at this point in 1995, Dole had a huge, huge lead over his Republican rivals for, for that nomination. But if you recall, he struggled to get the nomination. If he hadn't won in South Carolina, he might have fallen by the wayside. So it wouldn't surprise me to see something similar this time around. I, I think Trump's in real good shape right now. But I also hear from a lot of voters who are just tired of all the drama, um, they're somewhat concerned about Trump's mental state, and uh, they know that he's going to be facing at least two trials and perhaps four, and a lot of people are just wondering how all this is going to work. And uh, so when it gets time for people to actually vote, I I really do wonder if he's going to still be in the commanding position he is. All I do know is that we're headed to one of the biggest god-awful messes in the history of American (laughs) politics, because if for some reason Trump does fall, he's going to accuse the other side of rigging it against him. And (laughs) So we're liable to have another January 6th, but with Republicans somewhere along the line. So it's uh, it's a mess. Uh, Philip, but if you take the Robert Dole uh, comparison, right? Yeah, he, he won the nomination, but he ended up being a loser as a candidate. Uh, so is that is that the comparison Donald Trump really wants? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that no one is going to compare the position of Bill Clinton in 1996 to the position of Joe Biden in 2024, right? I mean, you know, I think those are not necessarily particularly comparable. I don't know anyone would have beaten Bill Clinton that year. Um, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump doesn't care. Donald Trump wants to get past this thing, right? I mean, you know, he won the nomination in 2016. He never had the level of support he has currently over the course of the primaries in 2016. He didn't start hitting 50% in polling in states. Like he didn't start actually winning 50% of the vote until after he basically locked the nomination up, right? So he is in a much stronger position now than he ever was in the 2015-2016 cycle. But then as soon as he got the nomination, he was going head to head to Hillary Clinton. He never let her. I mean, there's like two days in RCPs in the real clear politics average where he led her right after the Republican convention that year. And it didn't matter. 
right? It didn't matter because of how the electoral vote, uh, electoral college uh, mm-hmm. is skewed mm-hmm. in favor of him and his party. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think he cares. He's, I mean, first of all, Donald Trump is not, I think it's safe to say, a student of history. Um, and so I don't know that he's aware of that precedent. But, you know, once he hopefully in his mind gets the Republican nomination, he'll figure it out from there as, as he's long done. Right. Uh, so, Linda, Politico was out this morning with a story that many Republicans uh, just um, almost, uh, well, disappointed, so maybe not a strong enough word, with Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. the guy that they were really counting right. on uh, to be Trump without all the Trump baggage, right? Yeah. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Well, it's, DeSantis, it's DeSantis being DeSantis. He's not a likable guy. He has no charisma. Um, and he's had some own goals recently. I mean, he put out this, this ad, uh, highlighting comments that Trump had been, had made in the 2016 campaign, um, on, on gay rights. And it just inflamed, uh, pretty much everybody, anybody who supports, uh, gay rights and even people who don't, but just maybe have a gay relative or know somebody. And there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of sympathy, for, for gay people in this country, even among conservatives. And there's a lot of gay Republicans. So for DeSantis to go there was such a massive mistake. And you even have, uh, you know, uh, people who used to be in the, uh, in the Trump camp. Now with DeSantis themselves, like Steve Cordes saying that Trump is the runaway front runner. So uh, it's, I think the only way Trump can possibly be defeated in the primary is for all the candidates not named Trump to collude and decide on one that one of them should uh, be the be the one and and they all gang up against Trump. But I, I can't see them, you know, rallying around Ron DeSantis, who's I know from personal experience, not a likable guy. Uh, I, I was just chuckling because it reminds me of Scott Walker um, <laughs> in, in, in 2016. So um, if among all the candidates, David, um, Chris Christie is the only one uh, willing to stand up and take on Donald Trump and say we can't win with him. That's why we need somebody else. Does he have a prayer of a chance? <laughs> I doubt it. Maybe in New Hampshire, but I, I seriously doubt it. I'm, I'm glad Linda brought that up because I, I should have. It's, Trump is also benefiting from this, you know, this glut of camp of candidates who are coming in. Chris Christie being the most notable because he's focusing all of his attention on New Hampshire. And I, I guess it's possible for Chris to prevail in New Hampshire, kind of like the way John McCain did in 08. But I, I have my doubts about that because Trump's base is, is, is going to be, is going to be there. It's going to be solid. It, it, whether the question is whether it's 20% or 30%, I'm just not sure I see Christie surmounting it, but, but I think all I see happening is that Christie is going to help split up the anti-Trump vote and allow him to prevail, even with a number as small as 30. Right. Um, and Philip, among all the candidates, one would think, right, that a former vice president of the United States uh, would be way up at, at the top, the top challenger to Donald Trump. Clearly, Mike Pence is not. Um, my question to you is what's wrong with the Pence campaign or what's wrong with him as a candidate? But uh, to trigger that, let me just, here's a little clip of uh, Mike Pence this week talking about basically tax policies in general. Uh, But here he is. I'm somebody that I don't really buy into the 
the rich need to pay their fair share. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> they've got a house to pay for. Come on, <laughs> yeah, come on. I mean, isn't it stunning that Mike Pence has proven to be such a poor candidate? Well, I don't know that Mike Pence is a poor candidate as such, right? I mean, I think that Mike Pence had in his mind this vision of himself running in, you know, being governor of Indiana, going and becoming vice president of the United States. Um, and all of a sudden I'm blanking. Was Mike Pence governor of Indiana? He is where he was, right? Like it's early in the morning. <laughs> yes, I'm yes. like, for a second, I'm like, wait a second, is that right? I mean, this yeah. is, you know, this shows how much Mike Pence's life is defined by the vice presidency, right? He became <laughs> vice president Donald Trump with an eye toward, as so many vice presidents do, eventually becoming president. And I think he, despite what happened on January 6th, which obviously completely rerouted his entire political career, the fact that he did what he had to do and didn't exceed to Donald Trump's yeah. request to just throw the, the, the electors out, and as a result became persona non grata with a huge portion of the Republican base, like anyone else would have been like, well, so much for my trying to become president. Mike Pence somehow didn't understand that that was the lesson he should take. Maybe he, like so many other people, I mean, look, first of all, anyone who runs for president has to do so with this delusion. They're like, hey, maybe I can be president, which in most normal people don't suffer from the <laughs> idea that millions of people are going to support them for that position. But, you know, he comes into this from the very unique position of, in addition to having that delusion, just being deluded about the fact that, you know, maybe some, something will happen and everyone will turn on Donald Trump. I mean, every Republican has that to some extent. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, look, is he going to be on the ballot still by Iowa? I, I sort of doubt it. But, I mean, even if he is, he's not going to do very well. It's, it seems foreordained. You know, I mean, look, also, and I think this is partly DeSantis' strategy. Donald Trump is also very old. You know, he may become incapacitated. He may not be able to run. That then throws this thing open in a whole new direction. And I think maybe some of them are just kind of hanging out and saying, well, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of them are hanging out. Uh, I've, I've heard some people have made this comment, uh, hanging out, hoping for a heart attack or um, an imprisonment, right? And then right. they might have, a, might have a shot. Well, David, you mentioned that this is going to be um, uh, really a, a, a use of polite word, it turned out to be a real mess. I thought you might be talking about the August 23rd first Republican debate in Milwaukee. Now, right now, that looks like it's going to be a colossal goat you-know-what, right? Could be. It could be. But it also could be one of the most fascinating political events of all time because Christie, for one, is convinced that Trump's gonna, Trump's ego won't permit him to avoid the debate. So he That may, he, he will show there. up, really. Yeah. Okay, because he's. Uh, I, mean, I wouldn't bet on that, but you know, a lot of people who are smarter than me think that he will well, cave and do so it. I don't think that he will. Who's do we know who's qualified and who's not by now? That's a really good question, and that could also mean that could also lead to another mess because the qualifications for this debate are not easy. Uh, you can get the one percent in the poll is pretty easy, but they've got to show I think it's forty thousand individual donors. Yep, that might, that won't be an easy number to match for some of the people that we've heard about. And um, right, I know the DeSantis campaign is already spreading. So, you know, a lot of people won't be able to qualify, and uh, you uh, know who's going to be there. I think I think certainly Christie's going to have some problems. Obviously, the Asa Hutchins of the world will have problems. Uh, Ramaswamy is li liable to have a problem with that number. But there's even rumors that. Pence, Scott, and Haley may have trouble making that number. So, and another thing about this debate that people realize is the candidates are supposed to pledge to support the nominee, whoever he or she is. A lot of people are balking at that. Obviously, Trump is, but also uh, DeSantis has not made that pledge because it's uncertain as to whether he would support Trump, and it's also uncertain as to whether Chris, 
Christie has said he might not support Trump in 2016. So how could he make that pledge, assuming he's even qualified? So it's uh, it, the debate could be very interesting, but it would also be a stage with uh, two or three people. It's hard to believe that Chris Christie could support Trump or Trump the nominee after what Chris Christie has said. But um, right. And that's where this pledge comes in. And Pence is in yeah. the same situation. I just uh, that's that's uh, they, but they made that a condition of the debate. And it's going to be tricky for a lot of these folks. Uh, so, Linda, with all of Trump's growing endorsements, mm-hmm. uh, especially from members of Congress, there is one notable person uh, who is not on the list yet. And that is Speaker Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy. What's going on? Yeah, Kevin McCarthy is in this, just doing this high wire act, just trying to hold on to his job, and he's got to he's got to keep his caucus together, and he he just can't do anything that uh, you know risks that. I mean, you've got all kinds of antics going on. You've got this uh, effort to impeach Biden, which is politically dumb, but there you have it. Uh, you've got this cat fight going on between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy is just trying to trying to keep it together and not do anything that, uh, you know, that's divisive or inflammatory. Uh, and trying to maybe uh, hold his members together, exactly. right? But um, at some point, it seems to me, Donald Trump is going to lash out at Kevin McCarthy if he hasn't done so yet, right? Uh, after all he's done to support Kevin, right. Kevin. Um, my my little Kevin is not yet supporting me. Uh, well, I can't wrap up without just a quick comment about uh, the Biden presidential campaign. David, where is it? <laughs> hey, he's working every day for the American people. All right, all right. I don't, you know, I, I I think he's doing the right thing. He's just he's just being president. I would anticipate a rose garden strategy right as for as long as he can get away with it because, you know, let's face it, he's not getting any younger and campaigning for president is is pretty arduous. So I would expect him to continue this, just keep doing the job and making the pitch that this is what I do and this is why you should reelect me. Isn't it, uh, Linda, kind of like the basement strategy, right? Everybody said he can never win if he just stays in his Wilmington, Delaware basement, but he did and he won. Right, exactly. So, you know, the good news is that COVID is over as a as a massive pandemic. People are still getting it. But uh, the bad news for Biden is that he doesn't have that excuse anymore. And I, <laughs> you know, he really can't, I think, do a, a pure Rose Garden strategy. He really does have to get out there and, and prove to people that he's got enough energy to campaign at least once a week. Um, so it's it's tough. And this will this will be a real test for him. Uh, and I mean, being president and campaigning, uh, it. It, it tests the best of them. I mean, pr- young people, young presidents go gray, they get wrinkles. I mean, Joe Biden started out gray and wrinkled. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no primary, Philip, but uh, except for one, right? Uh, a man who is, I think, the Democratic version of Marjorie Taylor Greene when it comes to conspiracy theories. Uh, so why is Robert Kennedy Jr. getting 20% of the vote in some primary states? Well, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, his, his polling varies fairly remarkable depending on uh, the, the pollster and when it's conducted. I mean, more recent polls have shown him in the single digits pretty consistently. There are a lot of reasons. One is that you know, 
as I think we all accept, a lot of people aren't really paying attention now. Some people may be hearing his name for the first time as they're being asked it in the poll and they hear, oh, Kennedy mm-hmm. and like, oh, yeah, you know, they don't really like Biden that much. And they hear Kennedy and they're like, oh, I'm familiar with the name Kennedy. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, and, you know, they may glom on to it. I mean, I think one of the things that's important to recognize is part of the reason that Kennedy is so omnipresent uh, in the political conversation is not because of Democrats, but because of Republicans. If you look at the uh, favorability uh, ratings that he gets, he gets much better favorability ratings from Republicans. He does a lot of uh, communications and conversations with right wing or center right uh, um, uh, news outlets and media personalities. You know, he was asked to be at the Moms for Liberty event in Philadelphia, right? And he, he came up with some excuse why he couldn't go. But, the, you know, can you imagine them inviting any other Democratic contender for the presidency? I mean, it's just, you know, he is, he is absolutely someone who is succeeding in part because he's being granted a lot of attention by people who would love to have him actually present the threat to Joe Biden that he at this point is not. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Good wrap up of the week, uh, folks. Thank you so much, Philip Bump, Linda Feldman and David Jackson. If we let you go, however, uh, in this week, whether it was a story you were covering or one of your friends was or just one you happened to see, what really caught your attention? We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Linda, you start us off. So I, for me, what was striking, obviously this week was the 4th of July. And uh, I was just struck by uh, the people on the mall. I actually went to the mall. I've lived in Washington uh-huh. 35 years and I'm, I'm so over going to the mall, but, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there were plenty of people there. I mean, I think a lot of people are worried about security, but uh, you know, the parade, the reading of the declaration of independence, you have Thomas Jefferson in costume, George Washington, Abigail and John Adams. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I don't know, it sort of uh, brings back that sense of patriotism that I think some of us cynical Washingtonians maybe have lost a little bit, but I'm, I guess I'm feeling a little, a little bit of optimism about the future. So that's not a story in the news, but it's just kind of rediscovering Washington is kind of a cool place. Yeah, good for you. We were out of the country, but uh, every other year we always walk down to the mall as well, maybe just as far as the U.S. Capitol, but <laughs> great view of the fireworks there. And it does, uh, the, the crowd turning out, that does bring everybody together. It's a, uh, it's a great moment. David Jackson, how about you? What caught your attention? Uh, from the world of sports slash politics, uh, the Wimbledon tennis tournament's going on, and Andy Murray, wow. who's from Britain, he invited a woman, I'm embarrassed to say, I can't pr- pronounce her name, but it's a, it's a British uh, Iranian woman named Nazanian Zagara Ratcliffe. He invited her to uh, to watch one of his matches at Wimbledon. And why did he do this? Because several years ago, Miss Ratcliffe uh, was in Iran and was imprisoned. She's a charity worker, but she was one of these people who were snatched by the Iranian government and accused of being a spy. So they put her in jail for several years, I, I believe. But uh, in an interview, she had said that uh, that she did have access to a television while she was in jail in Iran. It only had two channels, but one of them showed the Wimbledon tennis tournament in 2016 when Murray actually won it. He, he was the first British player to win Wimbledon in many, many years. So she talked about how she vividly watched him win Wimbledon and she was so proud. And it was a, a, a brief moment of respite from her, yeah. her ordeal. And so Murray heard about this and invited her to the match. And she sat there and watched him. She chatted up with the, with the, uh, with Kate, uh, Princess Kate, and uh, it, I thought it was a very good story. It, it reminds me of two things. First of all, there are good people in the world, and secondly, I mean, there are many people in the world who are, are being imprisoned simply for doing their jobs or, or having certain beliefs, and it's something we should all be aware of as, 
this week of independence. Uh, good point indeed. I saw this morning, I think it's 100 days now since our colleague at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, that's correct. And it's, uh, it's a story we shouldn't forget. Right. Uh, and Philip Bump, uh, your favorite story of the week, my friend. Uh, mine was the the judge's ruling in this this case about misinformation in, in the federal government, which came oh, out on July fourth. Yeah. Uh, and so essentially, he he banned. He hasn't re- released his final ruling in this case yet, but he basically banned the federal government from having contact with social media companies. Uh, basically, accepting this right wing idea that the government had actively tried to censor information and communication on social media over the course of the 2020 election and uh, the coronavirus pandemic. But one of the things that's really fascinating about this case, it's, it is poorly argued in general, uh, I think almost necessarily given the, the, the conclusion that was reached. But I dug into it a little bit and found that one of the key examples he uses when he's talking about how the White House put pressure on social media companies is he says that the communications director for the White House uh, had held a press conference in which she announced that they were investigating whether there should be criminal sanctions against these companies. And I dug into it and I found out that wasn't what happened. Actually, she had been asked a question <laughs> on Morning Joe and Mika Brzezinski was like, hey, should they face sanctions? She was like, yeah, it's one of the things we're looking at. And that is actually uh, what occurred. But this became a press conference at the White House in the eyes of this judge, which I think the irony of him using misinformation to bolster his case is uh, hard to miss. Uh, and I guess one could also add that the Supreme Court apparently used misinformation in the Colorado LGBTQ case uh, to make their decision as well, where the person who was cited as not being able to get a website prepared for him and his uh, gay fiance um, never made such a request. <laughs> and yet the case went all the way to the Supreme Court and was decided in her favor, uh, the website designer's favor, 63. So uh, I guess facts don't matter anymore in the court of law, Philip. Uh, good point. I, I got to tell you, I, I, my favorite story of the week, uh, no doubt, hands down, Marjorie Taylor Greene being thrown out of the Freedom Caucus uh, in the House of Representatives. This is a woman... I'm sorry, friends, but she is batshit crazy, right? I mean, she believes that 9-11 was a total hoax, that the uh, that Barack Obama was. He said all of this, that Barack Obama is a Muslim, that the Clintons were responsible for the murder of John F. Kennedy Jr. because they thought he was a threat to Hillary's bid for the U.S. Senate. She is absolutely crazy, and yet she is still not conservative enough for the House Freedom Caucus, which just shows you how far off the map they are uh, when it comes to public policy and um, and just sanity, human sanity at any rate. So she is out of the Freedom Caucus, uh, mainly because uh, she made a deal with Kevin McCarthy and she voted for the debt ceiling program. Plus, we also know uh, on the House floor, as Linda indicated earlier, she got into a catfight with Lauren Boebert and called her a little bitch. Um, boy, I'll tell you, if she's if she's not conservative enough for the Freedom Caucus, what does that say about the Freedom Caucus? And with that, we thank you all for joining us today, and we thank particularly our panelists, David Jackson from USA Today, Linda Feldman, Christian Science Monitor, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, author of the new book, The Aftermath. Thank you, panelists. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday 
with our next edition of the Bill Press Pod, talking to Ellie Mistal, a great legal correspondent. And we'll be talking to him about all the recent uh, decisions of the United States Supreme Court and about Donald Trump and his mounting legal problems and whether he's, there's any light at the end of the tunnel for him on the legal front. That's next Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.